All right. Well, as I shared last week, I felt impressed to start the new year uh, by appealing to us all to make three commitments uh, for 2022. And those commitments are that we would each commit to God's mission for our lives, that we would each commit to emulate Christ's attitude toward the lost and condemned world, and that we would each commit to living according to Micah 6.8. And so last week, we focused on committing to God's mission uh, for our lives, and today we're focusing on emulating uh, Christ's attitude toward the lost and condemned world. In every age, it has been true that to be a Christian, at least if you actually live a Christian life, not just put the label on yourself, but actually live a Christian life. In every age, it's been true that to be a Christian means to be out of step with the larger culture. It means having a worldview that in many ways, you could probably say most ways, almost all ways, is diametrically opposed to the worldview of the larger culture. It means having values that are very different than the values of those around us. Being a Christian in many ways puts us at odds with the larger culture. It, it just does. And Jesus confirmed uh, this when he informed us uh, that his followers would be hated by the world. He said we would be hated because of our connection to him. The world hates him, and so by extension, they hate those uh, who follow him and and, and that's what Jesus said, and, uh, and, it's, and it's true. It's true. The values of the kingdom of God are so different from the values of the world system that we live in that conflict is inevitable. It's just inevitable. It is going to happen. One of the ways this played out in the early church was in the area of sexual ethics. Within a very promiscuous culture, which uh, the culture that the early church was in was a very promiscuous culture sexually. Most ages have been fairly promiscuous sexually. Within that culture, Christians were called to live lives of sexual purity. And as they did that, Their purity stood as an indictment of the sinfulness of the culture, and so the culture hated them. And this remains true today. Wherever Christians are committed to sexual purity, uh, which often is not um, as prevalent as it should be, or even simply committed to affirming the sexual ethics of the Bible, even if they fail to practice them themselves, it puts us at odds with the culture to the point that Christians are often despised by the culture that we live in. And that's just one example. This is true in many aspects of life. Christians who live according to the will of God, who are obedient to Christ, their lives stand as an indictment against the sinfulness and the godlessness of the culture. And so, Christians who truly practice the faith often do find themselves, as Jesus said they would, being hated. 
when this happens, there is a great temptation that comes to us as Christians facing these kind of circumstances. And here is the temptation that we face. The temptation when we are hated to hate back. To hate back. When you perceive that someone hates you, when you perceive that a culture hates you, it becomes extremely easy to hate back. And even if you stop short of actual hate, or convince yourself that you've stopped short of actual hate, it becomes really easy to become hard-hearted toward the world. It becomes really easy to get to a place where you disdain the world, and you disdain people who are far from God. It becomes easy to look at people who don't honor God, who reject truth, who undermine what is good and right for society, and hold them in contempt. To be so disdainful and so contemptuous of them that you no longer really long for their salvation, at least if you're honest, but you long for their judgment and their destruction. Disdain, contempt, desiring judgment and destruction instead of repentance and salvation, when that is the posture of our hearts toward the world, we are not too far from hate. We're sort of just a hop, skip, and a jump from hate. To use a sort of gross term, we're within spitting distance of hate when those things are true. And when that's our attitude toward the world, we displease God a lot. We displease God greatly. I want to be clear today that when we look at the world that has rejected Christ, when we look at the world that's rejected God's rightful rule, look at the world that has rejected truth, when we look at the world that only does what is right in its own eyes, it is, it is not wrong of us. It, I would say it's even good and right to, on some level, recognize and even desire that justice be done. Nothing I say today should be misconstrued to act like the sinfulness and godlessness of the world isn't a big deal. It is a huge deal. And it is good and right for us to desire that justice be done. I mean, Jesus himself told people that unless they repented, they would perish. He did not, he did not sugarcoat that. He was really clear with people about that. But here is the key to that. Jesus said things like that to people that he loved. He didn't hate anyone. He didn't disdain anyone. He didn't desire anyone's destruction. He warned, repent or perish, but it came entirely from a place of loving people. It is okay for us to acknowledge that justice will be served someday. But I would submit to us today that it is not okay for Christians 
to acknowledge that in a someday they're going to get what's coming to them sort of a way. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus warned people that he loved. He didn't gleefully tell people of coming judgment because he hated the people who were at risk of divine judgment. He didn't do that. In a culture that's rejected God's rule, rejected Christ, in a culture whose values are truly deplorable, in a culture that hates God and hates Christians, and and even if we should face real and severe persecution like Christ did and like the early Christians did and like Christians in some parts of the world do today, even then we are called to emulate Christ's attitude toward the lost and condemned world. And so for the next few minutes, I want to look at three passages of Scripture that show us Christ's attitude, show us God's attitude toward the uh, the world, and we'll see in these passages what our attitude is supposed to be toward the world. No matter how sinful it is, no matter how godless it is, no matter how hostile to us the world might be. We will see in these three verses what our attitude toward the world is supposed to remain at all times. And the first thing we'll see is that Christ loves the world that doesn't love him. I don't know about you, but I face constant temptation to operate like this. If you love me, I love you. If you don't like me, I'm done with you. Am I the only one? You're either shocked that I admitted that or you're feeling conviction right now. Everybody feels awkward. But I face that kind of temptation. But the first thing we'll see is that Christ loves the world that does not love him. And I've referenced John 3.16 a lot recently, and I'm going to do so again today. But we're also going to add in a couple of verses that are often overlooked, which is John 3.17 and 18. And here's what we find in these three verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. There are three things that I want us to note from these three verses. The first one we see in verse 18, and that is that the world we live in already stands before God condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned condemned already. The world stands before God, always has since Adam and Eve, condemned. Why? Because of sin? Because of rejecting God's rightful rule? Because of throwing off God's limitations on sexual intimacy? Because of devaluing life and making ourselves the arbiters of who lives and dies? Because of dethroning God? 
Paul described the world condemned by God in Romans 1 as a place that is, quote, filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. And if we made it through that list thinking we're doing pretty good, then Paul went on. The world is condemned because people are gossips. Right in the list with evil, depravity, murder is gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventing ways to do evil, disobedient to parents. <laughs> it's in the list with depravity and murder, disobedience to parents. The world is condemned. Have no understanding of fidelity, no love, no mercy. The world's condemned because people have no mercy. The world is not poised to be condemned. The world isn't positioned to be condemned. The world isn't on the precipice of being condemned. The world is already condemned. The world stands now and has since Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit, the world stands before holy God already condemned. That's the first thing to see. The second thing I want us to see is that because the world is already condemned, according to verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus did not come to condemn the world because the world is already condemned. And from just these first two things we see in verses 16 through 18, we can conclude very confidently that if God did not send Jesus to condemn the already condemned world, then it's probably not our job to condemn the already condemned world. That doesn't mean that we don't tell the truth in love about the condition of the world. It doesn't mean that we don't warn of the need for repentance. We do both of those things. But it does mean that we are not needed in the role of pronouncing condemnation on the people of the world. It's not our job. The world is already condemned. We are not to be like the judge who has a convicted person in front of him and at the sentencing reads the guilty defendant the riot act as he sentenced them. That's not our role. Our responsibility is to emulate Christ's attitude, Christ's posture toward the world. And this is the third thing that we see. Christ's posture toward the world that hates him. Here's what we find it is in John 3, 16 through 18. God loves the world that hates him and gave his son Jesus to the world that hates him so that through Jesus the world could be saved. 
How does God respond to the world that hates him? How does Christ respond to the world that hates him? God loves and gave his only begotten son to people who hated him. Jesus loves and gave himself to the world that hated him. And Jesus offers, God offers through Jesus, salvation to the world that hates him. We are to emulate Christ's attitude toward the world. That means we're to love the world like Christ loves the world. We are to love the world in a sacrificial way, in a way that we give ourselves to serving the people who hate us. And we're to testify to the saving power of Christ in hopes that people will come to see Jesus for who he is and receive the salvation that he has provided for. When we are hated like Christ did when he was hated, like God has always been doing throughout history as people have hated him. We are to love, we are to give, and we are to work to see people saved. We're called to love the world, not hate the world, not despise the world. Now let's see what we find about emulating Christ's attitude toward the lost and condemned world from Luke 19, 41 through 44. I think it'll be on the screen behind me. Here's what it says. As he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus is approaching the city of Jerusalem in this passage. It's not going to be long until he is tried and condemned and crucified. And he knows that that is exactly what awaits him in Jerusalem. He knows that he has been rejected and that when he goes into Jerusalem, he's going to be rejected. And he also knows that Jerusalem's rejection of him has sealed their fate. They will be judged for rejecting Jesus. This is what he says in verses 43 through 44. He's foretelling the judgment that will come upon Jerusalem because they did not recognize him and did not receive him as they should have. And that judgment was fulfilled somewhere around AD 70 when Rome ransacked Jerusalem. So Jesus has been rejected and Jesus has acknowledged that Jerusalem's rejection is going to result in judgment. But I want you to notice his posture, his attitude toward this city that's rejected him, toward this city that he knows is just about to kill him. He does not rail against Jerusalem. He does not thunder condemnation at them. We are told that as he approached the city, he wept over it. He wept. I forget which theologian I read this from this week, but one of the commentaries that I referenced says that, said that the word translated in the NIV as wept carries the meaning of 
sobbing and wailing. Jesus is brokenhearted. He is devastated that the city has missed their opportunity. He's not thundering condemnation. He's sobbing and wailing over people that he loves, not seeing who he is and the peace that he has for them. He's not angry. He is experiencing profound grief because the city has missed the one that they claim to be looking for. They have missed their long-promised Messiah. If we're going to emulate Christ's posture toward the world that's rejected him, that's dethroned God, that's devalued life, that's thrown off restraint, that engages in practices and holds beliefs that truly are abhorrent, our posture will not be one of raging against the world. We will weep for the world. We'll weep for people who don't see Christ for who he is. We'll weep for people who the enemy has blinded to the truth. We're not to be angry with people who are deceived by Satan. We're not to disdain people who have been deceived by Satan. We're to grieve for them. So in these first two passages, we've seen that if we're going to emulate Christ's attitude toward the world, we are going to love the world and we are going to weep for the world. We're going to love individuals who are far from God. We're going to weep for individuals who are far from God. We're not going to be angry with them and eagerly anticipate the day when they get what's coming to them. That's not our attitude. The third passage I want us to consider today is a single verse, Jonah 4, 2. Many of you are familiar with the story of Jonah. He was a prophet that God called to go and preach to the extremely wicked people in the city of Nineveh in hopes that they would repent, that they would turn away from their wicked ways. This is what God wanted. But Noah, I'm sorry, Jonah, Noah, oh, 52 is difficult. Jonah did not want to cooperate with God's plan. He refused to go to Nineveh. And here's the reason why. He didn't want them to have a chance to repent. He thought they were so evil that they did not deserve a chance to repent. 
Do we ever feel this way? I feel this way sometimes, I'll admit. People do something I consider so against God and against the Bible, and I view them as such a destructive influence on the, the potential faith of other people that I face the temptation like, oh God, that's a bad person right there. This, this is where Jonah was. He, he didn't believe they deserved a chance to repent. A prophet of God disagreed with God on whether people should have a chance to repent. God said they should. Jonah said they shouldn't. So if you know the story, God used some discipline in the form of a great fish to get Jonah to do what he was called to do. And so Jonah went and he did preach to the people of Nineveh. They received the message. And the extremely wicked people of Nineveh repented. And they avoided the destruction that they would have experienced if they had refused to repent. Evil Nineveh repented. God relented from sending calamity on them. And Jonah was ticked off. Even after all of the persuasion that God had done to get Jonah to go to Nineveh, when the people repented, Jonah became angry with God. And he complained to God. Here's what we read in Jonah 2. I'm reading this, uh, this one in the New Living Translation. So he, Jonah, complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you're a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Nineveh was an evil, evil city, a barbaric city. One of the things that I read this week uh, said that part of the way that they would treat their enemies would be to skin them. These were evil, barbaric people. And yet Jonah recognized that even toward this exceedingly evil city, God would stay true to his character. Merciful, compassionate, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. And Jonah knew that even with a people like Nineveh, that God was eager to turn back from destroying people. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to destroy people. Whenever we allow ourselves to react to the evil of the world, the evil of people around us, with an attitude that says they're going to get what's coming to them, 
they're going to regret that when they're burning in hell. They, don't, they won't feel so good about their lifestyle when they stand before God in judgment. Whenever we hold these kinds of sentiments toward the world, we are not emulating Christ, we are disconnected from the heart of God, and we are displeasing to God. Our attitude should be the attitude of God toward evil Nineveh, not the attitude of Jonah toward Nineveh. Our attitude should be the same as God's. God is eager to turn back from destroying people. And we should be eager for God to turn back from destroying people. These three passages that we've looked at today give us the right attitude, the, the right posture that we are to have to the world. We are to love the world. We're to weep for the world. We are to desire, we're to desire for people to repent so that they can avoid the destruction that is coming on this already condemned world. What is it that most tempts you toward hating people? holding people in disdain, having contempt toward people? Is it when they mistreat you because of your love for Jesus? Is it when they support abortion through all nine months of pregnancy? Is it when they throw off all sexual morality and encourage others to do so as well? Is it when they claim that the Bible is just a book of fairy tales and impact impressionable young people against the source of truth that God has given us? Is it someone who used to serve the Lord but now they claim to be an atheist? Is that, is that who really gets you angry? Is that the person that you really hold in disdain and contempt? The sin in our world in 2022 does not have anything on the world that Jesus came into 2,000 years ago. It doesn't. It doesn't have anything on Nineveh. And so what we've seen today in these passages is relevant to what our posture to the world today is supposed to be, no matter how objectionable we find the current moral and spiritual condition of the world. Jesus did not come to condemn, and he has not called us to a ministry of condemnation. He's called us to a ministry of reconciliation. He has called us to love the world, to give ourselves to serve the world, to testify of the salvation available in Christ. We are not called to be angry with the people who reject Jesus. That, that doesn't mean that there isn't appropriate anger. There is righteous anger. It is right to be angry with the enemy for blinding people to the truth. We should be angry about injustice. But we are not called to act angrily toward people who are far from God, have rejected Jesus, don't know the truth, live like the deceived people they are. 
We're not to act angrily towards such people. We are to weep for them. We're not to long for the destruction of sinful people and resent God for being eager to turn back from destroying people. We are to share God's attitude, emulate Christ's posture. We are to be eager for God to turn back from destroying people. We're not supposed to be like Jonah who wanted Nineveh to pay for their sins and get what's coming to them with no chance for repentance. We're to be like Abraham who pleaded with God for the city and asked God to be merciful to a sinful people. In Genesis 18, 23 through 33, we find a negotiation between Abraham and God that shows God's eagerness to turn back from destroying sinful people, and it shows Abraham's eagerness to plead for mercy for sinful people rather than pleading for their destruction like Jonah did. And I was going to just summarize the story, but I, I want to read it. And the, the context is that God had informed Abraham of his intention to destroy Sodom. And having that information, God and Abraham entered into a negotiation. And here's what we read. Then Abraham approached God and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, and I'm realizing I can't find 50 people, what if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five people? And God says, if I find 45 there, I won't destroy it. Once again, Abraham spoke to God. What if I can only find 40? And God said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then Abraham said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak again. I have thought through this some more, and I do not think there are 40. What if only 30 can be found there? And God answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, and I have thought about this even more, what if only 20 can be found? And God said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. I've tallied this up, and what if 
only 10 righteous people can be found. And God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Now, here's what we know, if you know the end of the story. Ten righteous people could not be found, and Sodom was destroyed. But this interaction between God and Abraham shows God's willingness to turn back from people. God is not willing that anyone should perish, but wants everybody to come to repentance. And it shows us, this story shows us, that Abraham possesses the attitude toward the world that pleases God. Where Jonah's attitude displeased God, Abraham was eager for God to turn back from destroying people. He was eager. Our attitude toward the world isn't supposed to be God hasten judgment. God strike them dead. Our attitude should be one that desires mercy. We are called to be like Abraham, not Jonah. For 2022 and beyond, it's my hope and my prayer that we would be people who would resist the temptation to take the posture toward the world that returns hate for hate. That we would be people who refuse the temptation to disdain those who are far from God, to hold people in contempt. That instead, we would have the attitude of Christ, that we would love the world, that we would give ourselves in service to the world, that we would testify to the salvation that is available in Christ, that we would weep for the world rather than pronounce condemnation on the world, that we would rejoice knowing that God is eager to turn back from destroying people. It is my prayer that we would be like Abraham who desired mercy for his city instead of being like Jonah who desired judgment. Let's make a commitment today, this year, and for the rest of the time that God gives us until Christ returns, let's commit to emulate Christ's attitude toward this lost and condemned world. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Let's stand.